0: We have an anchor that keeps the soul. The Anchor of the Soul with Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ in Olive Branch, Mississippi. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And now, Mike Hickson. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. And I want us to think about an ancient city that mirrors modern cities. Had you been fortunate enough to have visited Athens in the first century, you would have been impressed. It was one of the cultural centers of that day and time. It would be like today going to New York City, Chicago, Atlanta, Miami. Los Angeles, you see a lot of diversity, a lot of varying thoughts and opinions. Paul had the opportunity to visit the city of Athens. If you recall, back in chapter 16, Luke narrates his journey along with Silas into the city of Philippi. And it was in Philippi that he and Silas were apprehended, beaten, their feet were fastened in stocks. They were later loosed from their stocks as a result of a great earthquake. From Philippi, they made their way down to the city of Thessalonica where they preached the gospel. They taught for some three weeks in the synagogues, teaching that Jesus is indeed the Christ. They were run out of the city of Thessalonica and then made their way to Berea. And from Berea traveled onward to Athens. As a matter of fact, the text tells us that when Paul left Berea, he went to Athens and waited for Silas and Timothy to later join him. So once he arrived in the city of Athens, he was able to evaluate the city And there were a lot of different things that obviously piqued his interest. So I want to begin by, first of all, noting his evaluation of the city. And again, you think about the Apostle Paul going to the city of Athens. And listen to what Luke says about his arrival. Verse 16. While Paul waited for them, that is for Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the whole city was given over to idols. There were really three classes of people that Paul came in contact with in the city of Athens. First, Luke tells us he encountered idolaters. And the Bible says that his spirit was stirred or provoked, and that word means to exasperate, to burn with anger. And the reason the Apostle Paul was burning with anger was because, as Luke notes, the city was filled with idolatry. Some have said that there were some two to 3,000 varying idols in the city of Athens. It has been said in days gone by it would have been easier to find an idol than a man in the city. Wherever the Apostle Paul went, he was met with temples and shrines and festivals sacrifices and so it was a city filled with rampant idolatry and so in light of that i think about the world in which we live and the bottom line is there are many cities in our country today very similar when john closed out his book in first john chapter five he makes an interesting statement he said little children keep yourselves From idols. Did you know that there are any number of idols that have been erected by man today? Maybe not necessarily carved or graven with art or wood or some piece of piece of steel or metal? But rather there is the God of materialism. Do you recall Jesus said on one occasion that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses? How many folks in our world today have the idea that they are somebody because of what they have? There are so many people today that have literally sacrificed their soul on the altar of materialism. And Jesus understood the allure of materialism, that is, the things of this world, and you could add to that the God of money. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 addresses... The danger of desiring to be rich. Solomon talks about how riches make themselves wings and fly away. And the idea is that you might be wealthy today and in poverty tomorrow. You just don't know. Paul would say, Those who are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and snare, and many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men into destruction and perdition. He said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which some men, having reached after, have pierced themselves through with many sorrows and been led astray from the faith. So the God of materialism, the God of money, alive and well in modern-day America. You could go to many cities all across this country, and you'll see folks that are bowing to the gods of materialism and money. I think also about the God of self. There are so many people in our world today, basically, it's all about them, isn't it? Everything that they do, everything that they say, everything that they think in life ultimately revolves around them. Jesus talked about how sometimes we can, get, we can allow ourselves to get in the way of serving Him. In Matthew 6, 33, He said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. In Matthew 16, verse 24, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, listen to him, let him deny himself. Some people are unable to follow the Lord because they bow at the altar of self. And we live in a very selfish age, don't we? And so you think about how many people allow self to take precedence in life. So they're the gods of materialism and money. The God of self, the God of pleasure. This is probably the most entertainment oriented age that the world has ever seen. When you look at all of the various opportunities to enjoy entertainment in our world today, and for a lot of people it's all about pleasure and gratification. Again, it goes back. It's all about self. Do you remember the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, verse 4, talking about people who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God? Aren't there people today that are so caught up in gratifying self, in pleasuring themselves that they forget about God? It's not about serving God, it's about serving self and our pleasures, our gratifications, our wants, our needs. So these are some problems that, quite frankly, we face in our culture today. So when the Apostle Paul went to the city of Athens, he was confronted with idolatry. It was so rampant. But then a second class of people that Paul encountered... And that would be the Israelite people. That is, the Jews and there were Gentile worshipers or proselytes to the Jewish religion. Look at verse 17. The Bible says that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. So there were a number of folks... They believed in, as we would say, the one true living God. They were not polytheistic in their thinking, but rather they had an appreciation, a deep appreciation for the one true God, the God of the Old Testament, the God that the prophets foretold and spoke of in days gone by. So you have the idolaters, the Israelite people, And then note, if you would, a third class of people, and that would be the intellectuals, that is, the philosophers of that day and time. Note verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler, literally this seed picker, want to say? And the idea is, in days gone by, that There were those that would pick up bits and pieces of information and basically they would pass it off as their own. So they're accusing Paul basically of being this way. And so they said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, let me just pause here and call attention to these two philosophical thoughts. First, the Epicureans. They were following a philosophy that basically said what you do in life is you maximize pleasure and you minimize pain. Look, I don't know anybody that relishes pain. But for them, it was all about maximizing pleasure each and every day in life. The Epicureans, they believed that matter was eternal. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul. And then you had another group of philosophers, that being the Stoics. And the Stoics were founded by a philosopher by the name of Zeno. And they believed that the world was founded by Zeus, who was called, or was the so-called father of the gods and men. And These people had the idea that everything was governed by fate. Sometimes we talk about people that have encountered difficulties in life and how they face those things with what we would call a stiff upper lip. Well, that's the attitude there. So you have Paul, he is rubbing shoulders with, as we would say, the intellectual elite of his day. And you go to a lot of different universities around our country. You might want to visit some of the more prestigious ones, Harvard, Yale, Princeton. And you'll find any number of philosophical thoughts among those people. Now, the Stoics, they didn't believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in, they didn't believe in the eternality of the human soul. And so the Apostle Paul is confronted with these classes of people. So in light of that, I want you to think about his education of the city. Note again verse 18. The claim was made that he was a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They said, you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Now let me just pause here for a minute. There was... Interest among the people with regard to the Lord. Not only was there interest, but there was an intent in the case of Paul to school these people, to educate them about the one true living God. And so you think about the audience of people that he was addressing. Well, varying classes of people, they're idolaters. There are people with a Jewish background. There are philosophers of that day and time. So he is dealing with people that are monotheistic and polytheistic in their thinking. Some believed in the one God. Others believed in any number of gods. And yet, Paul understood his audience, his aim, preach Christ. Do You remember when he wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord ourselves as your servants for His sake. And so Paul intends to introduce these people to the one true living God. So note, if you would, verse 20. In verse 20, the Bible says, on behalf of the people, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Verse 22, the Bible says that Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a place where the Supreme Court of Athens held their meetings. and Some would say that at the summit, there were some 16 stairs that led to the summit. And so Paul is brought before a council of people. As he stands in the midst of these people, he begins to identify for them the one true living God. Now think about this. He has a mixed audience of people, many of whom are idolaters. So his intent is to declare to them the nature of the one true God. How do we know there's a God? If somebody were to ask you, how do you know there's a God? What would you say? And you look at Paul, here he is in this cultural city a city that is filled with intellectualism you've got all these different ways of thought it'd be like going down the city of it'd be like being in new york or chicago or atlanta and somebody stopping you on the street and asking you is there a god what would you say How can we discern whether or not there is really a God? Let me tell you, there are two ways we can know there's a God. First would be from creation, wouldn't it? In other words, design demands a designer. I can look at the world, and I can tell that there has to be some supreme being that brought this world into existence. Matter has not always existed. This world did not originate from evolution, some great explosion, but rather there was a divine force behind it. You remember what the psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork. Or what about Paul, rather Paul, I said Paul, or the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 3, when he said, every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Somebody built the home you live in. Somebody built the world in which we live, that somebody is God. And so we can tell, we can discern that there is a God based on creation. The only other way that we can discern there is a God is by revelation. Creation, revelation. We can know that there is some divine being that brought this world into existence because, as I said a moment ago, design demands a designer. But how are you going to know anything about the nature and character of the being that brought this world into existence without revelation? Well, the fact of the matter is you can. We have to have revelation to understand the mind of God, the nature of God. What does the Bible say about God? God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Well, how would I know that God is love apart from revelation? I wouldn't know that. The Bible says that God is rich in mercy. How would I know that He's a merciful God without revelation? I wouldn't know that. The Bible says that there is forgiveness with God. How would I know that without revelation? Well, I wouldn't. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 that he received revelation from God. And he said he took that revelation and wrote it down in human words, listen to him, so that when we read, we might understand the mystery of Christ. In Ephesians 5, Paul said, don't be unwise, but what? Understand what the will of the Lord is. So there is creation and revelation. So listen now to what Luke says about Paul and his introduction of the Lord to these people. He said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considered the objects of your worship, he said, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. In other words, Maybe there was some unknown God that they were excluding from their worship. Therefore the One whom you worship without knowing Him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is He worshipped with men's hands as though He needs anything, seeing He is the Giver of all life, breath, and all things." And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, has determined their pre-appointed times, the boundaries of their habitation. Let me just pause here. In the original, the idea is God made of one all nations of men. Some translations say He made of one blood. The word one here means out of. And the idea is that God created man. Yes, He did. But the human family is a result of man, isn't it? Remember Genesis chapter 1? God created man in His own image and in His own likeness. And so we all come from the same source, don't we? We all go back to Adam, is that right? Sure it is. So God has made of one all nations of men to dwell on the face of the earth. We all come from the same place. We might come from different parts of the globe. We might have different skin color. We might have a lot of variance in our physical makeup, but we're still all cut from the same cloth, basically. We all come from the same source. We did not come out of the sea. We are not the result of evolution, but rather we were made by a loving God. As a matter of fact, the psalmist said we have been fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalm 139. We have been made in His image, in His likeness. So this is the God that Paul is introducing them to. In verse 27 he says, So that they should seek the Lord and hope that they might grope or feel for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. We think about the omnipresence of God, the fact that he is ever-present. He just talked about his omnipotence, the fact that he brought the world into being. He's the one that created man. Verse 28, he said, It's in him that we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, We are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature, some translations say the Godhead, the Godhead would be comprised of God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, co equal, co eternal in their nature. He said, We're the offspring of God. And he said, You don't need to think about the Godhead as something like gold or silver or stone or something that's been shaped by art and man's devising. If you had the opportunity to talk to somebody today that knew nothing about God, didn't know anything about God, well, where would you begin? Wouldn't you have to lay a foundation? Now, there were some people in the city of Athens that they understood, they believed in the nature of the one true God, but there were a lot of folks that didn't. And you think about the world in which we live, the culture of our day. There are people in our world today, they are so messed up in their thinking. They have no concept of the God of the Bible. And so we have to, like Paul, reason with them and use logic. And using logic and reasoning, draw certain conclusions. There's a house, okay, somebody built it. There's a car, somebody built it. You have to use logic in dealing with people. That's what Paul did here. And his conclusion is, look, God is the one that created all of this. Now, I want you to see in the third place very quickly an exhortation. Note, if you would, his exhortation. Verse 30. First and foremost, Paul says here in summing up his lesson to those in Athens, first they needed to understand that there was a responsibility imposed on them by God, Look at verse 30, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Well, why, Paul? Why would God want people to turn to Him? Listen to him, verse 31, Because He has appointed a day on which He will judge the world. Now you think about that. Here were people that were worshipping any number of idols. There were some that were religious, they were monotheistic in their thinking, they believed in the one true God. Paul had sought to preach to them the fact that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God, that He was the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of man. So Paul's saying, look, you need to understand there is coming a day in which God is going to hold you responsible for how you live here upon planet Earth. Is that not a lesson for us today? That one day we're all going to bow in the presence of God and give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10. Note, if you would, the standard by which we're going to be judged. Because He is appointed a day on which He will judge the world, listen to Him, in righteousness. We need to understand, God is not going to judge us on the basis of how the moral majority thinks. We're not going to be judged on the basis of those political think tanks think, t- think tanks in Washington. We're not going to be judged on the basis of what we think. But rather, we're going to be judged on the basis of the heart, or rather, on the basis of the Word. And so he said, He's appointed a day in which He'll judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained, He has given assurance of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. So there is responsibility, but note, if you would, the response of the people. Listen to what's said. Verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. In other words, they ridiculed the idea. But then note. Others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And that is, they were reluctant to obey the gospel. But look at verse 33. Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus and a woman named Demarius and others with them. So Paul He's in the city of Athens. He has the opportunity to declare the one true God. The reaction of the people mixed. Some believed, some deferred, and some mocked, ridiculed. You think about the world in which we live today. There are so many different thoughts among people. We live in what might best be described as a pluralistic age. And the idea is you do your thing, I'll do my thing, you believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe. That was the culture of Athens, wasn't it? And what Paul was saying is, look, you need to understand, there is a true God. This God whom I declare to you, you need to obey, because when you obey Him, you enjoy all of His blessings. I want to close today by simply saying this. In this day and time, the cities in which we find ourselves living and engaging in business and other activities in many, many ways reflect or mirror ancient Athens. And so in light of that fact, We need to know what the Bible has to say. We ought to be able to tell others about the nature of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the teaching of Scripture is very plain. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Luke said, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so, if we're going to be saved, we have to be saved through Jesus Christ. He was the answer in the first century, He's the answer in the twenty-first century. It's as simple as that. So what do you need to do to enjoy the blessings of Almighty God? Well, Paul said repent. In other words, you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, why not repent of your sins, confess His name, and be immersed in water so that all your sins can be washed away, Acts 22:16. If you'll do that, look, God will put you in the church. Acts two forty seven, And if you'll be faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. If you're here, maybe you're not faithful. It might be you need the prayers of the church. Look, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you with the assurance that God will abundantly pardon. Thank you for listening to the Anchor of the Soul. Your speaker has been Mike Hickson, preacher for the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandage Road in Olive Branch, Mississippi. To hear this lesson again, go to olivebranchchurchofchrist.org. Tune in next Sunday for more of the Anchor of the Soul. In the storms of life, when the clouds unfold, their wings of strife When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, Will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul Steadfast and sure while the billows roll Fastened to the rock which cannot move Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love